Australia is full. Well, first of all, is that even true? We're a large country with a relatively small population. Let's get real. This is an assertion intended to deflect any sense of responsibility we might have for the thousands, no, millions, of displaced people seeking safety for themselves and their families. How do we make sense of this complex and urgent issue, and what can we do about it? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. And with us today to help us untangle this thorny issue of refugees and asylum seekers is Nathan Brown, who wrote a great article in this month's Signs of the Times magazine, the November magazine, about refugees. Thanks, Nathan, for being here with us. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's, look, now, I understand that since you wrote this article, you've actually been back to the Middle East, because you, you begin your article talking about your experiences in Jordan. What's what's the situation now in the Middle East? Are people talking about refugee issues, you know, refugees coming from Syria and Iraq and that sort of thing? Yeah, the thing that caught my attention back in 2015 when I was traveling in in Jordan in particular mm. was kind of a sense of pride from our Jordanian guide about, you know, we have refugees in our country and we can look after them and people think it's a safe place where they want to come and you know, mm. it's it's a badge of honour for our country to be able to care for and help these people. And that really caught my attention because it was kind of a little bit of a contrast to most of what, much of what we hear in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I suppose yeah. cult- culturally, like the Arab hospitality is legendary, yeah. uh, as is, I mean, it's built into Islam. And yeah. of course, Jordan is a, a has an Islamic majority. Yes. Uh, I think Lebanon, similar, about a quarter of the population in Lebanon is now refugees, I understand. Yeah, the numbers are pretty close to that. In Jordan, it's pretty much the same, about a quarter, so a country of 10 million people. And depending on whether the official or unofficial numbers, it sort of ranges from about 1 million to 3 million refugees Mm. in Jordan at the moment. And in 2015, when I was there, one of the refugee camps up near the Syrian border in the north of Jordan was the fourth largest city in Jordan. Oh, wow. So, which, so the fourth largest city in Jordan is a refugee it, camp? Yes. It, it's not quite so big these days because of you know changing demographics and changing situations. Some of the refugees that have been in Jordan have actually been able to return home to some of mm, the safer mm. places as some of these wars and situations have changed. So though I don't think it's quite that number these days, but it's still it's still a major population centre. Mm-hmm. But simply the attitude that the Jordanian people seem to have to welcoming, caring for, and saying, "Hey, this is a badge of honour." I, as I, as you mentioned, I've just recently returned from visiting there again. Mm had the same experience listening and talking with the guide who was showing us around some of the great places over there, Mm. said we're a very high taxing country because we have this responsibility to care for people. Oh, right. And it's very expensive to, this is is the words of the guide, it's very expensive to live in Jordan, but that's the price we pay for being able to care for these people. It's really interesting, you know, uh, when I reflect on the Middle East, I mean, there are some countries that have been incredibly generous, you know, mm. Jordan and Lebanon would come to mind, but then there are other countries in the region, um, like Saudi Arabia and Israel come to mind, mm. where they've taken almost no refugees. And it's yeah. just, re- and these are also countries that are bordering, you know, some of these, yeah. or, or very close to these trouble spots. It's a 
really interesting reflecting on the the different responses in in that same region. Yeah. Did you ever have that conversation? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, within Israel, there's a heap of refugees that have been there for generations mm. from the internal tensions and struggles and disputes that are mm. right, the reality right back to of, 1948, probably. Yeah, that's right. And we had the opportunity to wander into the area of the uh, the largest refugee camp in the West Bank, mm-hmm. which just happens to be across the street from the church that is built over the site of the of Jacob's Well, mm-hmm. um, which is a fascinating th- thing to look at when you recognise the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman. She mm. was an outcast, and the discussion they had about who God loves more and where, mm-hmm. all of these kind of things. And then across the street, we have 30,000 people living in what looks like just a kind of very densely populated suburb of mm. what is the city of Nablus these days, and that's what it's called. But that is actually technically but a refugee camp. But that's still settlement. technically a refugee camp, and there are people there that left their homes in 1949, 1950, mm-hmm. expecting that they would be able to return at one sta- at some mm. stage, but haven't got back there yet. Okay. Well, this highlights something really important, Nathan, that I think we really should get clear at the beginning of this conversation, because sometimes when statistics are being thrown around in the fairly heated arguments, you know, people have about refugees, it's not made clear that, well, somewhere like Jordan or, or Lebanon, for example, yes, there are hundreds of thousands, millions of people flowing across those borders and they are being looked after as refugees. Yeah. But they are not allowed to become citizens of those countries. And the situation, as you mentioned in the West Bank, we have a situation where there are, what, three, four generations of families who are still not being allowed to become citizens of, you know, one country or or another. Mm. Whereas a a country like Australia, for example, a country like the US, which is off, you know, we're often criticised of being fairly um, like ham, tight-fisted towards refugees. Mm. We are actually taking refugees in the sense of resettling them and making them citizens of our own country. So do you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. sometimes when, when the argument is made, oh, there's millions of refugees going to Jordan, why can't we take millions of refugees? But it's not actually apples and apples we're comparing. We're settling them, making them citizens. Jordan is not. Well, to some degree, what you say is correct. Mm. The reality is that for for almost all refugees, their greatest desire would be to return home. Sure. And there's been there's some amazing stories, some of what Richard Flanagan wrote a couple of years ago in visiting some of the refugee camps in Europe mm. where Syrians were going and they still had the house keys to wow. their house. Wow. Yeah, they were still hoping that one day the situation will improve and they'll be able to go home. And so many of the refugees, that's their ultimate dream, would Mm. be that things would be made right in their country, that the war would end, that whatever has pushed them out would be fixed or changed or brought to some kind of resolution Mm. and they could simply go home. Yeah, yeah. Because home is home. <laughs> but but right, I guess realistically, of course, though, once you've come to uh, you know a, a new country, you've established mm. a life there, particularly if you've had kids, brought kids young yeah. to that country or, or you've given birth to the children after you've entered that country and maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the track, you, you, you have the opportunity <laughs> to return in inverted commas home. Yeah. It's not home anymore. You know, at that point, you know, the country where you've settled is then home, especially if you're kids. Mm. They might not even speak the language of, of their parents. That's and, right, yeah. Yeah, wow. And so that's where these things do get terribly complicated. Mm, mm. And I guess one of the things that 
to some extent in the article that I wrote hmm. that's in, in this issue of Science Magazine, is simply say, well, even if we sidestep some of those debates, hmm. how we care for these people matters. Hmm. And how we respond to the people that are particularly at the moment in the, some of the ongoing issues with we have people in on, you know, the Australian government has locked up people mm. in places like Nauru and Manus Island now mm. for five years with no, seemingly no end in sight to mm. their situation. Well, not, not, not locked up literally. I, I believe they are free to roam around those islands. <laughs> but but it's they're a not very free, small island. <laughs> they're not free to leave the islands. And that's, that's right. Yeah. The, the, this is some of the language I think that does get people caught up to say, that's inaccurate. They're not locked up. Well, <laughs> yes, but they are detained. I, yes. I think we can be very yeah. clear about that. Okay. So you, you did spend some time in your article looking at the situation in Australia, the, the mm. situation of asylum seekers and refugees. I mean, how far back do we want to go to, you know, to <laughs> yeah. sort of unpack this, what, what sort of patterns Australia has shown towards migrant groups coming to this country? I mean, I mean well, first of all, you know, my, some of my ancestors came to this country on, on a boat. We were boat people. We were, you know, convicts on the first fleet, and and <laughs> yes, so I've got some of them in my yeah, family as well. Well, there you go. So we're we're both descended from boat people, and I of sorts. I, yeah, I yeah. don't I don't think the locals were too happy to see our our mob <laughs> sort of turn up. That's right, and we made a bit of a mess of it ourselves. Well, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, Australia has a long history that dates back to European settlement mm-hmm. of racial challenges. Sure, and. Certainly that has every generation there have been the people we don't want here, mm-hmm. whether that's the Aboriginal people and the white people arriving or whether it's mm. the white people and the next, you know, well, the, the, whatever. The, the Chinese miners during that's the right. gold rush, for example, they yeah. copped it pretty, pretty bad. Yeah. That's right. And then we had, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, we had people... Yeah, the Italians and the Polish and the Greeks and some mm. of the and well, many of them had we a had a white time. Australia policy at one stage. It was very clear we wanted our country to be a European country, an outpost right. of the empire. Yeah, and and this kind of it keeps being recycled, and it's mm. and it's in a sense it's nothing new. Mm. Um, I mean, I had the opportunity. You mentioned I was visiting the Middle East recently. Mm. I went to the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in yeah. Jerusalem. Yeah. And that's a pretty serious and heavy-duty thing to way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Oh, I bet it would be, yeah. And, you know, you to engage with that story in that kind of depth and even in that setting is a mm-hmm. remarkable opportunity, but also very mm. sobering and gets you thinking in all sorts of different directions. Well, how, how does this relate to Australian history, though? But one of the, one of the stories from, from that that I, um, you know, that particularly caught my attention from the Australian perspective is... I guess the way of telling the story that it, that is the way the story is told, the history is rehearsed in in that setting. As they mm. talk about how over the 1930s, Hitler had this plan to drive the Jewish people out of Germany, mm-hmm. you know, through economic, cultural, social, political mm. pressure, just freezing just, them, freezing them out of the academy, freezing right. them out of social life, that's freezing right. them out of politics, stop them running, you know, smash their businesses up, mm-hmm. um, you know, put a, put more and more restrictions on them in the hope that the Jewish people would simply pack up and leave Germany. Mm-hmm. Which some of them did. And some of them did, but mm. with with that wave of refugees, the question was raised, well, where do they go? Right. And so about 30-something countries of the world, the civilised countries of the world... So-called. ...got together mm. in, uh, in Evian, France mm. in 1938 and said, you know, what are we going to do with all these refugees? And the predominant, I guess, response was to shrug our shoulders 
collectively. Mm. And there's, but there's one particular response that caught my attention, which mm. came from the a guy by the name of T.W. White, who was the Australian representative at that conference. Mm-hmm. And he made this comment. He said, it will no doubt be appreciated also that we, meaning Australia, have no racial problem. So we are not desirous of importing one. Wow. <laughs> and so the reality was that this conference was the opportunity where the world could have averted what became known as the Holocaust. Mm. You know, six million Jews died over the next, you know, five or six years as a result of the world turning its back on these people. So it wasn't only Australia, it was a number of countries basically said, we really can't afford to take in a a large number of Jewish refugees. It it would alter our ethnic balance. It would cause cultural instability. Indeed. All of those great lines that we still use today. Yeah. Um, Wow. One one particular story was a ship called the St. Louis, which Mm. left Hamburg in around this time in early 1939 with about 900 Jewish refugees trying to get to Cuba. Mm-hmm. And by the time they'd sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, Cuba had actually revoked their landing permits and said, no, we don't want you here. Oh, wow. So after trying to work out what they do next, they sailed towards Miami at the bottom of Florida. Mm-hmm. And the Coast Guard stood, they got within sight of the lights of Miami and the US Coast Guard stood off and said, no, you're not coming ashore here. Mm. And there was state, you know, national statements by the US president at the time using all those lines about how they'll come and take our jobs, they'll upset the cultural balance of our nation. Mm-hmm. You know, we just can't afford to have these people here. And we're talking 900 people. Mm. And so they turned around and sailed back to Europe uh, some of them found safety in England eventually, but quite a number of those people ended up being killed in the concentration camps so in the 1940s. went back to Germany, went yeah. back to... Well, where else, they had nowhere else to go. That's, that's tragic. And so we've heard that it's been kind of notoriously reapplied in, mm. um, in Australian politics recently, this phrase, the final solution. Mm. So it was only in 1941 to 42. Yeah, please where, tell me that was an accidental use of, of that well, phrase. Yes, well, yeah. well, that's probably a whole other discussion. Yeah. But it was only in 1941 to 42 that what had existed as concentration camps, which were places of imprisonment and work, that they became death camps because when the rest of the world turned their back on the Jewish people, hmm. then Hitler, in, you know, he'd almost built up this momentum that we've got to solve this problem. Hmm. The rest of the world said, well, you're not going to solve it this way. And so, you know, no sympathy for Hitler in this story, but hmm. almost that he was painted into a corner that he had to, you know, solve the problem another way. And so, so he, he couldn't displace the Jews, so he decided extermination was that's right. And so the only option concentration camps became basically death factories it's, and started killing a, people. A scarily pragmatic way to look at it, an oh. absolutely horrific way to look at human yeah. life. Yeah, but but I see your point. And so, yeah, so we go back to this infamous Australian response to refugees in mm. 1938. Mm. And some of the same lines are the things we use today in the, in some of the same discussions. And it's just... Wow. And, know, and, and we're also turning boats back. That's right. We're turning boats Literally around. Literally turning boats. You know, we have a government policy of turning boats around. Mm. Yeah, it's just crazy. Well, and so, we, we don't hear much about it these days. It's all always well, considered to be secretive on, on, on water matters. Operational what, matter. Operational matters. <laughs> yes. And we don't even know how many have been turned back. That's or, right. Yeah. And of course, that becomes a way of... You know, getting stopping us thinking about it, stopping us being concerned about it. If we don't know mm. about it, 
you know, the I hopefully we won't be too upset about it. And mm-hmm. but of course, they, these are real people we're talking about who are having their lives literally turned around. And mm. you know, it's not always you know people generally come to do. You know, people become refugees because they have to be, mm. and you know, because there are strong push factors that are serious business for the people that are confronted with them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there are there are more positive stories in Australia's history of what we've done with migrants and refugees. Oh, of course, yeah. The, the Vietnamese um, boat people comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. And in the, at that stage, Malcolm Fraser in the late 1970s was kind of considered a great humanitarian and national hero because he welcomed Vietnamese boat people into Australia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were integrated into our society and you know, anyone that enjoys a good Vietnamese restaurant in the, in their suburb, you know, has to some extent has that to thank for it. Mm-hmm. So we have done better, but kind of what I consider the the current history of Australia's response to refugees and boat arrivals, you know, kicks off in 2001 with um, John Howard's response to in the Tampa crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm. It helped, was a pragmatic way to win an election in late 2001. Mm. Coming off the aftermath of, you know, in the aftermath of Pauline Hanson version one. Mm. It, it was an issue um, even before that. I remember in the 90s, you know, people protesting about mandatory detention and yeah, problems yeah. in detention centres in Woomera and then Baxter after that. But but you're right, it really did seem to take a whole new resurgence with the Tampa in 2001. And of course, that was the same year that we also had the you know 9-11 attacks yeah, and yeah. fears of terrorism. So it was a, sort of the perfect storm in some ways, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and became a politically useful tool, you know, and that's, I guess, a little bit of a cynical view, mm. but I think it's a real view because it has become a, since, since that time, since 2001, it has mm. been a major and far in, ex, in excess of the actual size of the problem. Mm. Yeah, and what? the amount of money that we as Australians have spent mm. on locking up relatively small numbers of people for an awful long time... Mm is absurd mm. and it, I, it's done something to us as a nation. I, th- I think what it comes down to is deterrence because Australians, you know, we, we were shocked generally when we saw that footage of those, those refugee boats coming close, you know, to the, to the, to the rocks. In Christmas the, Island. On Christmas yeah. Island and those heavy seas and those, you know, boats being smashed against those rocks and we just knew you know, not everyone is going to survive this. You know, this is mm. horrific. And it sort of gave us a visual picture of what had been going on all this time of, yeah. of people in desperation for whatever reason, mm. whatever legitimate reason, wanting to come to Australia. But nevertheless, no one wanted to see that happen again. Mm. So I guess some people would say, look, drastic situations cause for drastic, you know, drastic solutions, drastic answers. How, how was it wrong of, of the Australian government to try to stop people coming to Australia by boat? Yeah, and certainly there's an argument that we don't, no, nobody wants to see anybody die on a leaky boat mm. in, in the Indian Ocean. But the challenge with that is people only do take that kind of risk when they've got the push factor, mm-hmm. you know, when, they have, when, they're, so, when they're so desperate. Mm. You know, if you, you know, it was a line a few years ago that some of the advocacy groups used in this, you know, people only do that when that's the least worst option. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a pretty sobering thing to stop and think about. Mm. When something that dangerous, that unpleasant, that, you know, risky to one's family, to one's kids, to, 
you mm. know, if that's the least worst option, what are they actually running away from? And so we push that away from our seas, mm. you know, so they're stuck somewhere worse. Mm. Although, so, although I guess you're, uh, what you're saying does imply informed consent. And it's my understanding that not everyone knows what they're exactly getting themselves in for when they, when they yeah. sign up with people smugglers to, to right. get on a boat. They don't yeah. know how big it is, however crowded it is, how long the journey is yeah. or, or anything like that. And certainly, yeah, there's certainly a lot of sympathy in my mind for, you know, let's not, you know, create a business for the people smugglers to use mm-hmm. that kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Politicians have been talking about breaking the business model of the people smugglers. Yes, yes. And yeah, that's not a good thing. That's, mm. you know, there needs to be a better way to solve that. Yeah. Which unfortunately for all the politicians that have been uptight about this, there hasn't been a lot of progress in saying, well, what can we do to actually solve the situation mm, mm. that gets the people on those boats Yeah, and that desperate and, you know, spending that much money and all of those things. So it's, yeah, it's messy. Yeah. And there's no simple solutions because if there is, there are a lot of good people that would be trying to implement them. Mm. The, the thing that worries me, I guess, most about this is the, the doctrine of deterrence. Mm. Um, w- because basically what seems to be happening here is the argument is if we treat this particular group of people as harshly as possible, yeah. it's going to put off other people from wanting to repeat the same behavior. Yeah. And while that may or may not be effective, mm. I wonder from a moral point of view, <laughs> is, it, is it right to cause one person to suffer in order to um, discourage other people from doing the same behavior? I mean, I, I know in Queensland, you know, where you've lived and where I, I've lived for a while, I, I've sat there in magistrate's courts and I've heard it said, you cannot sentence one person as a deterrent you know, for, for, else, for yeah. other people. Like their punishment has to fit the crime. And, mm. and as we know, seeking asylum is not a crime. It's I mean, not, that's, that's right. despite... It's a legitimate thing to do. Despite yes. people calling asylum seekers illegals, it's actually not... Well, well I think what it says is it, it would be otherwise illegal to cross a border, but if you're doing it in order to seek asylum, it's actually not a, an illegal act. Yeah. So, yeah, that whole... The, yeah. mora- the morality of the deterrence doctrine worries me. You know, if, if mm. you basically have a bunch of heads on sticks, you know, yes. uh, saying, warning, go back, go back. I mean, that's just a horrific thing to do. And effectively, that to me seems to be what um, our, our government, the Australian government is doing. Yeah, but, it's a very pragmatic morality if, you, if, it, if it's morality at yeah. all. Yep. And it's you know, very much the end justifies the means. And that, yeah, we we need to be very careful about that. And of course, that then brings us to the present situation and Mm. that we have, you know, whatever the political rights and wrongs and even the, you know, the larger morality of this discussion, Mm. we have people now who've been on Nauru and Manus Island Mm. for uh, f- more than five years. Mm. It's uh, pronounced Manus. I've got to Manus? tell you, that. everyone says Manus in the Australian <laughs> media, but I've lived in PNG as a okay. kid. It's Manus. It's Manus Island. <laughs> but go Very on. Good. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know the place I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. So we've had people locked up there at Australia or detained there. Detained, yes. <laughs> at Australia's expense for more than five years yes. now. E- even though the PNG government has said we're not part of this anymore. That's right. Which is crazy. And, and they're um, still there. We have put these people in remote places mm-hmm. as much as anything for the sake of getting them out of line of sight of your mm-hmm. average Australian voter. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be locked up there. They could detained there. Mm-hmm. They could be placed in other places where they could be cared for better, where they would have better 
mental health, better physical health. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that anybody living in on Nauru or Manus Island, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, that's a challenging place for healthcare for oh, to live well, to have yep. any kind of quality of life. Mm. And I think right now, as we record this, there's a very strong campaign to get children off Nauru. Mm. Yes. And it, I mean, there are a number of kids who have just recently like, been taken to Australia for medical treatment and and, I, and there's also the New Zealand solution which is being discussed and mm. I do hope that, you know, by the time this goes to air that that might be resolved and, you know, wouldn't that be great? We live in hope, yes, yeah. because yeah, th the reality is that simply being in those places messes with people, particularly being locked and locked mm. being being detained indefinitely, being yeah. locked up without any hope of release. Yeah. And when you say five years. It's just soul destroying. When you say, I mean, I used to be a probation and parole officer. And if I saw someone who had a five year sentence, I think, oh man, what's this manslaughter, rape? You know, mm. like that's the sort of serious crime, we, mm. uh, a serious sentence we give for those kind of crimes. And yet we've got people who haven't committed a crime who that's are right. detained in worse conditions for, for longer. And you'd have children there who that's all the life they know yeah. and all they can remember. And yeah, there's, yeah, and then there have been more and more such instances of self-harm, of suicide attempts, of actual suicide, mm, of mm. other physical and mental health problems that just seem to be getting worse and worse with mm. as the time that these people are left in those it's, places. Yeah, it, it certainly is horrific. Now, Nathan, you, you said you went to Jerusalem recently and a few years ago on a sort of a, a Bible lens tour. So mm. you, you're a man of faith. You know, if we read your article, we see that. Um, if we read other things that you've, that you've written, we can see that. Does the Bible talk about refugees? Can you, can you take a, an approach to you know, a political or an um, ethical approach to refugees based on the Bible, like you know, being honest to the Bible? Yeah, yeah. I think the Bible has much to say in relation to, and in some ways the Bible is unique in the literature of spirituality in mm -hmm. that it has a very strong bias towards the outsider. Mm. What, what do you um, mean by that? In that, and, and it's often... There's, there's kind of this trio that often in the ethical teachings of the Bible, mm -hmm. there is concern for the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans, mm -hmm. the people that are most vulnerable, mm -hmm. the people who wouldn't normally experience, particularly in the ancient cultures in which the Bible was written, that mm -hmm. wouldn't normally be favored or even perhaps sometimes even cared for. Mm. So the Bible has this bias towards you know, to borrow the phrase, the least of these, or mm -hmm. the people that are often excluded or forgotten or marginalized. Mm. And both positively and negatively, you know, if you care for these people, this will be something that will reflect well on your society. Mm. Um, I'm just reflecting on those words, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, and thinking what would be the closest equivalent in, in our society. And I'm, I'm thinking probably foster kids, single mums, and, the and refugees. Ref and refugees. Yeah. 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 Sorry, and, I, I just, yeah. just, just a thought bubble. Go, go <laughs> on. And, and so there's certainly this recurring ethical focus on mm. a society that is healthy, that is good, that is faithful, mm. that is, mm. will prioritize caring for the, those who are most at risk. Yeah. And, and also one of the fascinating things is Jesus as the central person of the Bible in yeah. the way he was a refugee. And I find in, that in, fascinating. In, in what way? In what way was Jesus a refugee? As the story is told in the Gospels, when Jesus was perhaps 18 months old, something in that, the king of his region, King Herod, mm -hmm. decreed that all the kids under two years old in his 
community should be killed as a way of singling out Jesus. Mm-hmm. But as yeah, and it was a small village of Bethlehem that they were living in at the time after he'd been born there. They escaped. Mm-hmm. And Jesus grew up for perhaps a couple of years, maybe even a little bit longer than that in Egypt. Mm. So he crossed a border with yeah. his family. He was taken with his family to escape a murderous king who was, you know, really out to get them. Oppression. Yeah. And, you know, found a safe place on the other side of a border mm. in a different community, in a different culture where to some extent he grew up. And then when they returned to Israel, they didn't return back to Bethlehem. They actually went up north went to, to another Nazareth, part of the country, yeah. to a to a to a, what would have been a safer part of the country, and that was where then Jesus grew up. But he had this story in his in his own life of being, you know, it's so much the story of so many of these kids on mm. Nauru and places like that in the world today. I find it incredible how much the story of Jesus identifies with so many of the people who suffer in our world today. Mm, mm. And this is just one uh, one more small example of that, that Jesus knew what it was like to be a refugee, as did his family. You know, they ran for fear to get mm. across a border to a safe place. Well, you wonder, and, don't you? I, I wonder if Jesus actually spoke some Egyptian by, by the time he got back. Yeah, well, we he don't knows. really know how long he stayed. <laughs> You know, you can look at the dating and say, okay, well, like they returned after King Herod had died. And then... I mean, by, by the time he was 12 years old, he was going he to was the tw- temple. That's right. So yeah. it's somewhere between two and 12, they, he's returned. But mm. yeah, who knows? Wow. And there are parts of the story that yeah. are left untold. That, that's fascinating. And, and in your article, Nathan, you, you quote this quite, you know, hardcore verse from the Bible, from uh, the book of Deuteronomy that says, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner the fatherless, or the widow. Yeah, that's the the trio you you mentioned before, and wow, that's that's pretty tough. I mean, d- does that apply to us uh, as individuals? Is it, does it apply to us as a nation? I mean, are we inviting a curse on ourselves <laughs> um, by withholding justice? Yeah, I mean, I think some people would read these verses and say, well, this is in the context of the Israelite nation and a special relationship that they had with God as the Bible narrates it. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, to apply it directly to our nation today may not be the best way of using a Bible verse. Mm-hmm. But I would suggest that it probably sometimes what is presented in the Bible as a curse of God may actually simply be the results of a certain attitude and a certain way of living Mm. and that if you live in a way that refuses to do justice, refuses to be generous, refuses to love and to accept and show mercy to people in need, Mm. then that will have an impact on your society. Mm. That you will be, you know, when a society becomes more, sorry, less generous, Mm. you know, that affects all of us. Yeah. When a society, you know, puts up walls and wants to be, you know, we're going to just look after ourselves. That actually makes us more insular. It makes us more afraid mm. because the higher you build the walls, the more scared you are that someone might get over them somehow. Mm-hmm. There's kind of this cause and effect that yeah. sometimes is reflected in what might be talked about as the curses of the Bible. And of course, the corollary, corollary to this, that is, if you do do these things, so justice to the foreigner, the widow and the orphans, mm. then you'll be blessed. Mm. And when you are generous, when you are kind, when you're open-hearted, when you're able to embrace and show mercy to people, that changes how you interact with everybody else in a society as well. Mm. And there and are the positive s- consequences the of that. The society becomes a better place to be. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, 
while we might talk about some of these things in very pragmatic and political kinds of ways and rights and wrongs, and they are complicated mm. many times, you know, there's not a simple answer to these situations. There might be better answers, but they don't, you know, they are not squeaky clean and 100% pure. Oh, ab- absolutely not, no. But, it's, it's messy. But there also comes this sort of essential choice that we have to make about what kind of society do we want to be? What kind of people do we want to be? Do we want to be people who care about others, that live our lives openly and generously and largely, or do we want to be small and narrow and people. just self-protective and, and, mm. and that... That not only is a result of our fear, it actually makes us more fearful. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a that's a basic choice that each of us make, but also as a society we do make. Mm-hmm. And that is expressed in how we vote and how we have public conversations and how we engage others in our communities who might be a little bit different from us. And yeah, I have concerns for our country because of the 20-year mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. we have around these issues that I don't think we're better for it. Mm. I'm, I'm really glad, Nathan, that you, you brought up some of these issues because we are out of time. But just before we finish, I mean, you mentioned voting as one thing that we can do. Mm. But what are there other practical things that we can do if, if we feel, hey, yeah, there, there is injustice being done or, or even if, if we're happy with the way the government, what the government's doing, how do we express our view on this? Um, how, how do we, mm. you know, get involved? Yeah, I think we live in a society where we're made up of the voices that we we can be. And mm, it's called a democracy. It's called a democracy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so how we vote matters, but also how we engage in public discussions and conversations. We mm-hmm. need to listen to some of the stories. I mean, there's some there's some very good writing around that tells some of the stories of of some of the asylum seekers and refugees mm. that are on, are you talking are online blogs or, or books or articles um, or yeah, there's, I mean, there's a book that came out just recently called No Friend But the Mountains that's written by one of the guys who's still on Manus Island. Mm, okay, um, written by text message and oh. then translated into English and just published recently. A fascinating story into not only his story on Manus Island but how mm. he got there, mm-hmm. his experience on coming on a boat and. Mm-hmm. You know, very reflective and lyrical kind of writing and mm. a fascinating piece of literature just by its origins. But mm. so, you know, hear those stories, listen to those stories. There's some great documentaries around. There are ways to get informed and to hear some of those people's voices. There, are, of course, are many people living in our societies who have had those experiences mm. Mm. and to sit down and hear their stories and why they came and why, you know, what the change that it's made in their life to become a part of a community in Australia and what they hope to be able to contribute to Australian society that they want it to be the best place it can be because mm. they've seen what it what other places can be like. Yeah, you're and right. So so if, if you see someone moving into your street and you think, oh, they look like they may have arrived in the country fairly recently, mm. where, you know, regardless of what sort of migrant they are, I guess yeah. it's always good Listen to, to sh- show yourself friendly yeah. and bring over a batch of muffins and, and say hi. Yeah. And then, of course, if you really, and I think we should be, interested in speaking up on behalf of these people following some of the biblical imperatives that we've talked mm. about. That's a fancy um, way of saying commands. <laughs> commands. It says you should. That's right. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're, if they resonate with you and you say, hey, we, we need to do better with this as a yeah. country, write to your local member of parliament. Yeah. 
recently, just in the context Fe- of some of the things. Federal that, member probably rather than state. Primarily, they, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're the guys. They're who, the people who make these decisions. Yep. Recently, just in the last few weeks, there was a couple of three Liberal Party MPs that spoke out and said, hey, we need to solve this problem of mm-hmm. the kids on Nauru. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote to each of those three MPs. They weren't my local members. I simply wrote to them Mm -hmm. and said, thank you for speaking up. Please keep talking. Mm. And two of them wrote back, kind of a form reply, but just saying, thank you. Yes, we will keep speaking. This matters. We need to solve this as a country. There you go. And we need to make progress on that. And so particularly... You know, at the moment, there does seem to be a little bit of momentum mm. to say, hey, we, we can't just keep these particularly kids, but their families as well locked up forever. Mm. We need to resolve this situation and that matters for our country. And so I think if enough people keep speaking up on that, it, can, it, it will happen. Well, that's right. And, and unfortunately, is, I think as long as, you know, de- detaining people continues to be a vote winner, mm. You know, in, in other words, so long as we keep voting for parties who, who right. offer that, it'll still keep happening. We, I think we have a responsibility as, as a community to ask ourselves what sort of country do we really want to be? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, often we, we talk, when, poli- when elections happen, we talk about all sorts of different ideas and mm. some of them more important than others. But some of these basic questions are, what kind of society do we want to be? Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I, for me, they're the values that I think are most important, not who's offering the best tax, tax mm. cuts next week. Wow. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Nathan. But I really appreciate you chatting with us. And yeah, thanks for, for the information you've shared with us and, and for your passion too. God bless. Very cool. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.